Trump is a phony, a pathological liar, and a racist. That's how we beat Trump. We expose him for the fraud that he is. That sounds like a good idea. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Count me in. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day uh, on the internets for your listening convenience. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. On those and other fine affiliates, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for once again special coverage of the first Democratic presidential debate of, uh, of the 2020 campaign, night two. As you may have heard, another 10 Democratic candidates appeared on stage at Miami's Adrian Arsht Center for the Performing Arts on Thursday night for night two of debate one for the 2020 presidential nominating contest, appearing on Thursday for the second night's festivities following a similar event the night before with 10 other Democratic hopefuls. We're once again, just so I'm sure to mention all of them at least once today, the Thursday crowd included Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, former Vice President Joe Biden, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, California Senator Kamala Harris, former tech executive Andrew Yang, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, California Congressman Eric Swalwell, author and spiritual advisor to Oprah, Marianne Williamson, and former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. It was a very spirited debate, if I say so myself, with a whole lot going on, though the big story of the night seems to belong to Kamala Harris for a number of very good moments that she had, including one where she took on Joe Biden, the presumptive front runner, quite directly. And uh, as the pundits have been arguing ever since, quite effectively. We'll get to that in a moment. But the questions Covered quite a bit of ground over the two hour debate, including health care reform, which received a lot of attention, 
immigration reform and family separation at the border, issues of race and segregation, gun safety, congressional gridlock, climate change for at least a few minutes again anyway, albeit late in the program as uh, as usual, and of course the need to remove Donald Trump from office, who, as Washington Governor Jay Inslee identified the night before, is as Kamala Harris correctly noted on the second night, the greatest threat this country faces right now. There was even talk, albeit briefly, of the call for universal basic income, thanks to Andrew Yang's presence on the stage, and a uh, a shockingly, I would say disappointingly, brief reference to the Republicans' packed and stolen U.S. Supreme, Supreme Court, which seems as if it should have been a much bigger issue for all of these candidates in both of these debates, but that was uh, certainly true on Thursday as much as it ever will be, given the Supreme Court ruling that came down that morning, just hours before the debate. You would think, given the landmark five to four opinion by the right wing stolen majority, uh, that federal courts will no longer have any place in preventing an epidemic of extreme GOP partisan gerrymandering in state after state over the past decade. Given that ruling, it's remarkable that I do not believe the issue was either asked about by the moderators on NBC or raised by the candidates themselves, at least not in any substantive way. Now, not to sound too much like Desi Doyen by complaining about the lack of climate change questions, as she does all the time. Hi, Des. <laughs> Hello. There was actually almost 15 minutes devoted to it on uh, on Thursday night. No, actually, that was total time was ah. 15 minutes over the two nights. So that's about 15 minutes out of nearly four hours of conversation for, you know, an existential threat to all life on Earth. So, you know. No rush. Well, you make my case about your whining there. Thank you. <laughs> well done. So not to sound like her, but to quote from uh, some of my colleagues on on the Twitters last night, Sam Levine over at HuffPost said, to quote, there was no questions about voting rights either night of the Democratic debate. The Supreme Court released hugely consequential voting rights decisions that morning. Stephen Wolf of Daily Coast uh, Politics said there was a total failure of NBC. The Roberts Court released two hugely important cases that spell out how Republicans will be able to rig congressional and legislative elections in America for years to come. Yet they didn't ask them. Uh, they didn't ask about them in the Dem debate. And our friend Ari Berman over at Mother Jones said, "Absolutely astonishing. There were two huge SCOTUS opinions on gerrymandering and census today, and no questions about it at the Democratic debate." He goes on to note that there have been 27 debates in 2016 and 2020. And yet still no questions asked about the attack on voting rights. That is kind of extraordinary. Even we were able to fit it into our one hour of coverage on our previous broadcast. But there was much they did talk about in what we'll see, but what may turn out to have been a very consequential debate night. Joining us now to make sense of it all, of course, as usual, the delightful and happy that it's mostly over for this round. Desi Doyen is here today. Oh, yes. Uh, hey, Des. Uh, also joining us once again as our as our through line from night one to night two, 
of the first Democratic presidential debate of the season is our returning champ and award-winning Salon.com political columnist Heather Digby Parton, founder of the much-beloved Digby's Hullabaloo blog. Welcome back, Heather. Did you uh, Are you enjoying uh, the presidential election season some 17 months before <laughs> oh, the actual election? Oh, my dear God. <laughs> okay. um, I, enjoyment isn't the word I would use, but I am, I am uh, observing with interest. Let's put it that way. Diplomatically said, Heather. Also with us today, another good and very wise friend of ours, Richard R.J. Escow. Longtime columnist at Huffington Post and everywhere else. He's host of The Zero Hour, which is a weekly radio and television program. He's also a former insurance executive, which may come in handy today. Uh, and it should be noted, a senior writer and editor for Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential run. Mr. Escal, welcome back, sir. Always a pleasure. Now, Always a pleasure. Now, Richard, yesterday Heather disclosed her personal inclination, if that's the right way to put it, towards Elizabeth Warren's candidacy. Shall we consider you, Richard, to be in the tank for Bernie again this year? Are you taking any official role in his 2020 campaign? I'm not taking any official role. I mean, I, when my opinion is asked, I will give it. Um, <laughs> but I have very warm feelings about Elizabeth Warren and what she's doing as well. I mean, I think at this point the best way to describe my position towards the candidates is that there are issues that I think are critical and that I care passionately about, and those issues are the template against which I'm judging all of them. And so far, honestly, there's a part of me that wants to move on uh, and find the new candidate. But so far, in speaking to the issues, I would say Bernie is still scoring highest for me. But I think Warren's terrific, and I am happy to say so. so. Yeah, he's totally in the tank for Bernie. Now, Heather, <laughs> uh, did, did I, I categorize your, your Warren lean accurately there? I don't want to misrepresent your position. All right. Uh, now, so with that in mind, uh, you are our through line from Wednesday nights, uh, night one to Thursday's night two. What struck you as the biggest difference overall between the, the two nights of the first Democratic debate? Well, uh, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that from a strategic standpoint, all the candidates heard all the pundits praising, you know, Julian Castro and Bill mm -hmm. de Blasio to high heavens for interrupting and, you know, did the, train wrecking the, the, some of the questions on the first night. So they all decided to do it yes. <laughs> on the second night. Yes. And, I mean, it was so obvious that they had, you know, learned this from, from the mm -hmm. media coverage of the, of the first night's debate, which tells you something. I mean, the media coverage, and I think, you know, this is a shallow observation, but I'll make it quickly. You know, the media coverage of debates is really more important than the debates because mm. what happens is most people don't watch them, and those who do don't. A lot of them don't really know what to think. You know, what does it all mean? You know, the analysis of how this positions any of these people. So the media coverage uh, is very meaningful. I mean, some candidacies have been completely derailed by media coverage that mm -hmm. was wrong. But that you know, I'm thinking of Al Gore one who was mm. just, you know, vilified in a couple of debates for things that he actually didn't do, but the media, you know, just right. took it that way. Or, you know, uh, in any case, that is a small point, but it, it just to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, illustrate the fact that these debates are, are really, they're, they're the, these early ones especially, they're, they're theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, so basically everybody, we critique them as theater. And e even though those of us people like us, ser very serious 
and important people like us. We do look at the substance <laughs> of what they're saying, well, but most people aren't as wonderful as we are. Well, so. I will thank you to leave these shallow points to me, Heather. <laughs> uh, but as long as we're uh, talking about the, the way the media is looking at this, I think that the moment that ha- seems to have most reverberated from Thursday night's debate uh, at least according to the media, and I think arguably in the debate, debate itself, was this moment between uh, Kamala Harris and uh, and Joe Biden. So let's get let's get right to this uh, this sort of face off between the California senator and and former state attorney general and the former vice president. The topic of race came up, and I believe it was Marion Williamson who raised the topic of reparations, and Harris as the only. Uh, African-American on the stage on Thursday night. She sort of broke in to respond to the issue, and then she used it to face off with Biden uh, regarding comments that he had recently made citing his willingness to work with uh, 30, 40 years ago with segregationists in the U.S. Senate back in the 70s as as a way of demonstrating how he was able to work with people that he claims Uh, He did not agree with in order to get things done anyway in the U.S. Senate. Let me play part of that exchange uh, and then we'll get everyone's thoughts on it. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a coworker, who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. That was Kamala Harris speaking to Joe Biden. She went on to try and force him to admit that he was wrong to oppose court-ordered busing to integrate schools at the time, which he said was a mischaracterization of his opinion that he opposed the federal government taking such action but he favored local and state officials taking that action. Uh, so let me start with uh, Richard here. Your thoughts on that exchange, which uh, has become the focus of a lot of the a lot of the coverage following last night's debate. Well, a couple things. One is uh, I was astonished that uh, Joe Biden seemed so unprepared for it. Oh yeah, his, his comments about 
Senator Talmadge and Senator Eastland have gotten heat for more than a week, Mm -hmm. and yet he seemed absolutely blindsided by being hit over this. His history, his record on busing had been attacked for longer than than a week. Mm -hmm. He seemed unprepared to address that, except candidly in a disingenuous way by suggesting that he was only opposed to a limited form of busing, which is not what the record says about Biden in this case. And lastly, that he resorted to what sounded to a lot of years, including mine, dangerously close to a kind of state's rights counter-argument mm-hmm. that said, well, I didn't really oppose uh, busing in principle. I just thought that should be up to the local school boards. Well, uh, we know how local school boards in parts of this country over history have acted when it comes to things. Uh, civil rights are not a matter for a local school board to decide. So, uh, look, he's in a tough spot on that issue because he can't say, uh, I supported busing because I would have lost my job as a United States senator if I, that those were the politics in Delaware at the time. So he's in a tough spot, but he, he should have had, uh, there were answers he could have had that would have been much better than the one he gave. And as for Kamala Harris, I, 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 this may upset people for me to put it this way, but she played it beautifully. And by that, I mean, she knew exactly what she was doing. Mm -hmm. It was scripted. She was ready to say it. She was waiting for the moment to say it. And she said it so well and so effectively that it was uh, the knockout blow that everybody's been describing it as. I agree with that common wisdom. I think it Mm -hmm. was a very powerful, not a knockout blow in that I think his popularity or ratings will fall more than a point or two as a result of this debate, but a knockout blow in the sense that it left him reeling, and as I I think Mm -hmm. uh, what Heather was saying, if that shifts the narrative to Biden is stumbling and on the defensive, which I think this debate could, initially his numbers won't be hurt a lot by it, but over time that narrative will take over and and he will start to really hurt as a result. We, uh, Heather, we talked a, a bit on our previous program after uh, night one about the need to sort of weed out which candidates will be able to take on Donald Trump and which ones wouldn't, and then we can sort out policy differences later and so forth after, you know, sort of weeding out those who would simply not be able to take on the hardball bullying, uh, you know, to be able to stand toe-to-toe with Trump on a debate stage and in the race overall. Did uh, Kamala, in that sequence there with Biden and really uh, other moments throughout the night, did she demonstrate that she is up for that task as you see it? Sure she did. (laughs) She did it very well. And in fact, I think you can look, she's obviously got a talent for for that particular thing, because she's one of the only people in the the Senate who actually took took Bill Barr downtown, too. I mean, Mm. she she basically, you know, she cornered him and made him, you know, took him off his game uh, pretty severely. So she's good at this. And (laughs) and I agree, of course, with Richard that this was scripted and this was her this was her chance. But that's what you you know, you do that. You prepare. You have certain things that you you have a strategy. I think that's part of the problem with Biden is that he's just sort of coasting on his reputation, assuming that everybody everybody loves me, you know. Mm. Um, but I I do want to point something out. There if there is a strategy to to Biden's uh, approach last night, uh, and I think that 
to the extent there is one, this is one case where it, where it exists. And I think you can see it going back actually to his entire career, and he's continuing it here. And that is he's dog-whistling a certain group of people here. Mm. He's trying to have it both ways. You know, he has a lot of goodwill among the African-American community, largely because of many things he did in, in, his, in his career for civil rights, but also and mostly because he was Barack Obama's vice president. Mm-hmm. In order, though, for him, so he's counting on that. He's counting on that affection to keep him going. But he also is counting on the idea that all those guys, you know, I'm, I'm good old Joe from Scranton, right? Right. That he's going to appeal to a bunch of these white working class dudes who voted for Trump. And in order to do that, I think that's why he's playing this so weirdly. I mean, it's not that complicated to figure out in this day and age that you have to account for something like this. That, And as Richard pointed out, this isn't the first time this stuff has come up with Biden, and he's got advisors around him who have to be telling him, hey, look, you know, this is a Democratic primary. There's better ways to do this, putting that in his head. I, I think this is, in his mind, if not his entire campaigns, I mean, I'm not going to blame it on... You know, saying they're doing this, you know, nefarious kind of dog whistle campaign. Mm-hmm. But this is what Joe Biden does. He's done it his whole career. He did it back in the 70s when he was first doing this busing stuff. He did it throughout. He's always kind of, you know, shaving things on the edges, kind of finding a way to sort of be that white working class guy who since the 70s has been upset about race. Well, he did it in the, in the Anita Hill hearings, too. You know, oh, so yeah. this is who he is. And I think that I, I think maybe we're we're sort of attributing too much of this to the idea that he's, you know, kind of lost a step and doesn't really know what he's doing. I think on some level he kind of does and always has. Well, isn't it, you know, aren't we at a place, couldn't the case be made, you know, sort of that that dog whistle you're talking about, and Bill Clinton sort of did the same thing, too, as the Democratic Party was sort of shifting over the past several decades, you know, from the the, the, the Dixiecrats to now many of them are uh, Republicans now. Wouldn't he be better off to take, for example, a page from Pete Buttigieg? I was very impressed. When he was asked about uh, this uh, recent shooting in South Bend, uh, and he was asked, you know, about the uh, the police force in um, in South Bend, Indiana, that where South Bend is twenty six percent African American, but the police force is only six percent African American. Why isn't that better? Uh, why hasn't that gotten better under his uh, uh, administration as mayor? And he said, because I didn't get it done. He just, you know, he owned it. And I was impressed by that. And wouldn't it have been a lot better for Joe Biden to simply say, you know what? I was wrong. That's what I did in the 70s. I regret it now. Yep. I would like to yeah. move move on. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm going to push back a little bit on the assertion that Pete Buttigieg really owned it. Okay. He was the artful dodger. He did not own the the de facto segregation in his own police force. He did not own his role in firing an African-American police chief, uh, an action that resulted in a major financial settlement, uh, details undisclosed, mm-hmm. with said police chief. He, he looked like he owned it. I didn't get it done while actually changing the subject to a large extent. So I was really turned off by the play here and came away thinking, if you can't handle this kind of problem in a city of 130,000 people, what makes you think you can run the entire United States of America? And as far as uh, Joe is concerned, uh, you know, I agree and don't agree with Heather in the sense that I think that, yes, this is, it's Joe trying to be who he's always been. 
But I, I think there is, candidly speaking, not that I uh, support it. I mean, I think it's ethically wrong. I think there is a way to uh, to dog whistle and yet not look like you've stumbled and fallen. <laughs> and, and he managed to both dog whistle and fail at it and conspicuously <laughs> fail at it. And, sp- sp- and you exp- never yeah. want to be in that position. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and conspicuously stumble on it. I mean... I think clearly that the ground has shifted, uh, not just the, the under under Biden's feet, not just the cultural ground, but the how you talk about politics and issues ground has shifted. And I think that's why yeah. Buttigieg sounded like he won that moment, even if, you know, substantively you could make the case, as you did, that, that he didn't really. But Biden is not, you know, he's been doing this for so long, you'd think they would have figured this out by now, how he is going to respond to that. And so the fact that they haven't, with Harris jumping in like that, I think makes him look really out of step, and that's not going to play well, I think, with anybody under the age of, say, 40. Heather, what should matter more here? Uh, Kamala Harris's own record as a prosecutor, which many progressives actually question, or her ability, as she demonstrated uh, last night, uh, to, to be able to stand up and defeat Donald Trump? Well, look, she has to answer for her record, and she's going to have to answer for it with progressives, and she'll have to answer for it with others. I mean, uh, you know, the, her record is spotty, and, and there's a lot to talk about. Look, this is part of, I mean, she, you know, you join the, pres- the race for president mm-hmm. of the United States, you have to be able to run this gauntlet. Now, I'm going to give her credit for being what I think, what looked to me, and I've been observing this for a while, I heard, observing her in the Senate, like I said, going up against Bill Barr, and, uh, you know, various town halls, and then this performance last night. Again, it's all theater, right? But she gives the impression of being uh, strong in a way that is, um, that I think could be daunting to, to Donald Trump. There's something about her, I think, that, that, that is actually, she's proving, I think, that she may be a, uh, a good candidate up against Donald Trump. And that weighs in my decision. I will, I will admit it, yeah. you know. I mean, I, there are plenty of candidates that I like, but that's going to be part of what I uh, what I think because to me Donald Trump is an emergency. So you know, I, yeah. Yeah, all things being equal, you know, assuming that you know, as I th- as I look at this field, it looks to me like the whole party has moved tremendously left. And I do want to mention a, something just quickly for your audience, mm-hmm. which is there was an interesting piece in the New York Times yesterday about uh, something called the Manifesto Study, where they look to see uh, where the two parties stand in relationship to left and right around the world. The Democratic Party is by far the more mainstream party, and and what they had done up until 2008 was run as fast as they can after the extremist Republicans. They were running to the right every chance they had. We were watching it happen. I know that everybody who's who's on here saw all that happen, and they sort of stopped and stutter-stepped a little bit, and ever since then, though, they've been moving back to the left. It is not an extremist move. It is a mainstream move. They are where the people are. They're in the center of gravity. So I'm really happy to see that the party, the mainstream of the party, is moving that direction. Now, we're going to have lots of arguments within that. It's a big coalition. You know, we, all of us, I think, are over on the left side. And we're going to argue with some of these people that are in the middle. But we should take heart that whatever happens in this race, the party itself has moved to the left substantially. And that means that we have room now, some breathing room, to, to do some of the things that we on the left think are important. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, it, and it makes me feel a little bit more confident that 
whoever it is that emerges, and, and you know, hopefully it will be my favorite or, or all of your favorite, whoever that is. But, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hold out hope that, uh, that we prevail because I think that we're in a much better position to do some progr- get some progressive achievement. Uh, Richard, and, and yeah, the go only ahead. thing I would add to that is that I think all of us have got to rewire our, our, our linguistic programming so that we stop even calling someone like Michael Bennett a representative of the middle or the center, because, in fact, the left is the center. If you look mm-hmm. at the polling on issue on issue, and that's, that's what Heather is saying, so we all have the reflexive habit of saying, well, the centrists are, that they're not the center. They're no. not the actual center. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, uh, I think that goes to the limitation of political dialogue and, and the misuse of polling. So I think in terms of, of the point about who can best beat Trump, I also think it's important to recognize that while Biden and Bernie uh, poll best right now as uh, in terms of beating Trump, uh, that it's way too early for that to be the only measure of how you measure whether a candidate could beat Trump. So I think it's right to do what Heather did and, and use these more subjective seeming, like here's how Harris took on um, uh, Biden, which is an indicator of how effective she'd be at Trump, that's got to weigh at least as much as the polling at this point. Yeah. Uh, we've got to see how they perform in terms of, in, in a way, she has, uh, uh, and I'm speaking of Kamala, Harris has has demonstrated a real gift for uh, being a scrapper, and it's going to take a scrapper to beat Donald Trump, Uh, which is why I don't think Biden's the guy to do that. i got to get to a break here, uh, guys, but you make uh, a—Richard, you make an excellent point. By the way, one of the reasons I've been asked about this before, that we use Stuck in the Middle with you as the theme song, is not because I am a centrist, but because I believe uh, where all— three of us here are is actually dead center in uh, as far as where the uh, the majority of this country actually is and so it drives me similarly nuts when i hear people refer to people like uh, michael bennett uh, as a moderate as if anyone to his left is a crazy person <laughs> they're not moderate at all Anyway, uh, exit question here before we go to the break very quickly. Uh, was whatever happened last night enough to shake up the field after uh, the corporate media had sort of fallen into the same old trap? We can call it the uh, the Hillary trap where they, you know, that the perceived front runner before the campaign will actually, you know, remain the front runner because voters seem to shake up that idea pretty quickly in most cases, it seems to me. Is it already being shook up, uh, Heather? I think it is. I mean, you know, like I said at the beginning, uh, the media response, their their critique of the debates can have a big effect on public opinion. You know, they see these public, you know, they do snap polls, and then often several days later they'll have changed, mm-hmm. sort of going with it. So I think it will have an effect. Do I think that Biden is, you know, toast? No, of course not. <laughs> it wasn't that big of a deal. Richard, but, can, he, you know. can he remain yeah. on, the, on top of the polls as these debates continue if they go like this? Well, I I 100% agree with Heather that the media narrative is going to decide that. And I think the media may already be falling in love with Kamala Harris, which if that also happens, then she will rise dramatically in the polls as a beneficiary of their love. And it's pretty early 
for her to rise. I know, and, and that's a problem, yeah. you know, if you're a, if you're a Harris supporter to keep that momentum going because remember back to 2016 when it was the Republican clown car, it was a boyfriend of the week and then they would get dumped, you know, immediately yeah. after. So, I hope we don't come through that same sort of shallow coverage that gets rid of these candidates without an actual good airing and vetting of what they believe. The shallow coverage will continue here <laughs> on the broadcast. We need to take a quick break and then we are back with uh, much more on night two of the debates our special coverage with salons heather digby parton and the zero hours richard escow i'm brad friedman this is your bradcast Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. If we're going to end gun violence for families who are fearful of sending their kids to school, pass the torch. Vice President, would you like to sing a torch song? I would. <laughs> I'm still holding on to that torch. Part of Joe's generation. I'm all for Part of Joe's generation. Let me respond. The issue, if I may say, is not generational. The issue is not generational. The issue is who has the guts. Talking about my generation. Welcome back. This is our special coverage of the Democratic debate, first Democratic debate, night two of that debate. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with Heather Digby-Parton, R.J. Escow, and, of course, Desi Doyen with us. Uh, that was at the top of that clip. That was California Congressman Congressman Eric Swalwell uh, with his uh, probably best moment of the night. And now at risk of being called, uh, well, I heard someone laugh there, uh, at risk of being called ageist here, which I am not, I felt that uh, Biden actually seemed frail yesterday. Now, he's, I think he's actually younger than Bernie, who did not seem frail, and uh, they're both uh, a bit older, though not by much, than Elizabeth Warren, who also does not seem frail. But I am looking for someone who can make it eight years at this point. So while Joe is okay now, I do worry, based on what I saw last night, that he may not be in great shape in four years. And frankly, I worry the same about Bernie. Am I wrong, Heather? You're not wrong. I mean, I I hate to be ageist about this, too. And I I, I agree with you. And I agree with you on the difference between uh, Biden and Bernie. You know, I think the the reason is is that Bernie's always seemed like this. <laughs> Even right. when he was young, right. I mean, he was sort of a cantankerous, you know, old guy. Uh, but spry, was, right? But he's spry, and he you know, has plenty of energy. But I mean, it's always been he's always had the same affect. You know, I don't see any change in him 
over the last few years. That's the difference between him and Biden. Biden, we know very well. He's been in the public eye as long as we can remember, and very much so during the Obama years. And, you know, he looks a lot older. He seems a lot older. And, you know, in fact, the moment that you played there, I thought his best night, his best moment of the night was smiling. Mm -hmm. You know, that smile is magnificent. I mean, Joe Biden has one of the best smiles in the universe. I have to watch and the debate with sunglasses on. When it, is, it, is, it is a brilliant smile, but it yes. was a very, it was a good moment for him, because it was kind of like, ah, kid, you know. I mean, it was, it was a good way. Now, again, why wasn't he prepared for a big comeback on this? He had to know that somebody was going to pull one of those questions. And, you know, he, you would have thought he'd have, he couldn't cop Ronald Reagan's, but something like that. Yeah. You know, I won't hold you using the experience against you. You know, there's a way to, to do that. And when I saw him smile, that big, bright smile, I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. You know, he's got it coming, and he didn't do it. Well, he said, I'm holding on to that torch. It, it, was, it was a pretty good line uh, from Swalwell, i got to say. And uh, I don't know if anybody was expecting him See, to come up with uh, it's something. It's funny like that. that you guys say that, yeah. actually, because I thought it was a stupid line. Really? <laughs> and, yeah, and, and I didn't think so because I'm old. I thought so <laughs> because... Because between uh, Swalwell and especially Beto, first of all, because I think generation, generational warfare, I personally feel, is a scam uh, cooked up by oligarchs to keep people from discovering where the money is really going. Right. So, so I think it's, he's, he's either falling prey to or consciously uh, colluding in a hustle that, you know, will result in everything from Social Security cuts to, you know, an inability to address inequality. So uh, I'm predisposed against that argument. But especially with both Beto and Swalwell, they never say what they're going to do. Exactly. So, so it's, a, it, it's a scam, to, and, and it's so transparent. Mm -hmm. People, because I think because of the Internet, are so much more savvy, politically connected people or politically in interested people, that it just comes across like what it is, which is uh, a way, a shallow way of trying to hype something superficial about you, which is your age, without ever saying what it is. Pass the torch to me so that I can do what exactly? I, I, Caldwell was never in a place to answer that question. And I think that's, uh, I, I, I think your point is right on the money. That said, I think if you're Eric Swalwell and you have to figure out how to get attention in a 10-person or 20-person field, that didn't hurt. And look, we uh, we took the bait. We played it here on the show, and I, I've seen a lot of other folks play it as well. Let me uh, get into some of the uh, actual substance here. And uh, we talked about this a bit on our previous show because it came up on Wednesday, it came up again on Thursday night when NBC moderator Lester Holt once again asked the candidates, and this is the direct quote, who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Now, on the first night, Elizabeth Warren and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, they were the only ones to raise their hand when asked that question. And it was asked again last night. Only Bernie and Kamala Harris raised their hands. She has since said that she thought the question was about her own insurance, not about her own health care proposal. But again, I asked this uh, yesterday and I don't know that we got clarity on it. So let me ask you, Richard, as a former insurance executive and a supporter of Bernie Sanders, why why is it necessary to abolish 
or ban private health insurance? If people want to, pay, even under a, a, a single payer universal uh, system, if people want to pay for a private plan for care that they could otherwise get for free, essentially from the public program, Medicare for All, uh, for example, why not just let private insurers wither on the vine when people find out that they can get the same care under a national health care plan without needing to pay for private insurance? Why is this even an issue? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion around it. Even Bernie's plan and, and, and Pramila Jayapal's would not uh, make it a federal crime to create an insurance plan, but it would make it impossible, in effect, because, as you say, if everybody's already paying taxes in to a system, to a Medicare for All system, Mm -hmm. where for most families are going to pay far less than they're paying right now for premiums, co-pays and deductibles, and they get first-dollar coverage, there's no no Mm co-payment out-of-pocket costs at all anymore going forward, there's nothing to sell for the... I speak, I'll bring my biography into it now, Eric Swalwell style, as a former healthcare executive. Uh, there's no reason to have private insurance anymore, except maybe for some unusual conditions. Now, as other people have pointed out, it does exist in, company, in countries like Great Britain, mm-hmm. because people don't want the weights, they don't want, and I think part of the concern, and maybe part of the reason why it gets described as or characterized as outlawed is because of the fear that private insurers will immediately swoop in, uh, uh, cut private exclusive deals with doctors and hospitals, shut out the public system, mm. uh, and then quick, quickly start taking rights away from people. But I think, I think the wrong way to debate the issue is what is and isn't legal. I think the right way to de- debate the issue is... Uh, it's not there, as you say. There's going to be no need for it. So right, but there. But Richard, the the problem is the right is going to take this ball and run with it. Bernie wants to take your just like you know take your guns away from you. He wants to take your private health insurance away from you. So you are at the mercy of the big bad federal government. It seems like someone ought to nip that in the bud right off the bat, rather than allow that. Uh, that, narrative? that narrative, yeah, to, 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 to take hold. Let me play Kirsten uh, Gillibrand here. She seemed to be trying to merge the two ideas with, with her health care plan. Uh, and then I'll get both of your thoughts on this. The plan that Senator Sanders and I and others support, Medicare for All, is how you get to single payer. But it has a buy-in transition period, which is really important. Anyone who doesn't have access to insurance they like, they could buy in at a percentage of income they could afford. I believe we need to get to universal health care as a right, not a privilege, to single payer. The quickest way you get there is you create competition with the insurers. God bless the insurers if they want to compete, they can certainly try. But they've never put people over their profits, and I doubt they ever will. So what will happen is people will choose Medicare, you will transition, we will get to Medicare for all, and then your step to single payer is so short, I would make it an earned benefit, just like Social Security, so that you buy in your whole life, it is always there for you, and it's permanent, and it's universal. That was New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, and I think uh, she gave a reasonable-sounding argument, so I don't understand why... Bernie and others are allowing, you know, Fox News and the wing nuts to use it to scare the hell out of people, Richard. Well, I, there's a simple answer. 
which is she is actually not proposing a system that would lead to Medicare for all. This is what we were originally told about the public option during the Affordable Care Act, which I supported. But the fact is that uh, I know how insurance companies work. I know how they will attract the healthier people. Uh, and leave the unhealthier people to the public system so that it has uh, financial problems it would not have otherwise. I know that a system like that would be complex and difficult to administer. I know that under a proposal like Gillibrand's, you would not be able to afford uh, full coverage of the kind that Medicare for All offers because that would make it unaffordable compared to these plans with the kinds of cherry-picking the insurance industry would do, it would fail. And in the long run, it would leave us where we are now, which is unsupportable for the American people. So I think Democrats have to be less timid. I think Democrats have to be willing to say, look, this is going to be a thousand times better for you than what you have now. And we've learned that the other plans can be sabotaged by Republican politicians and insurance executives. So let's do the thing we know is going to work. That's Oh, sorry. So go. In other words, you're saying that Democrats need to get their stories straight and concise and make these bullet points so that the public can hear them for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been saying since I was working for Bernie, you put me in a space capsule and land me anywhere in this country, any neighborhood in this country. I'll go to the nearest house and I'll sell them on Medicare for all if they give me 20 minutes. And Democrats don't have to be afraid to make that argument, but they are because we are a fearful folk, well, and we've got to get past that. Making, making the argument for Medicare for All, as Bernie has very effectively over many years, um, it, I have no problem with that. I do have a concern about handing unnecessarily in an election year you know, when there's an election to win here. Yeah, <laughs> weapons to your other side. And let me, uh, to, to that point, before we got to get to another break here, uh, Heather, uh, Trump Sorry. Trump tweeted, I I think, one time during the uh, Thursday debate after Lester Holt had asked for a show of hands uh, of the folks who were who believed undocumented immigrants should be able to use any national health care plan, which, by the way, when I got sick and needed drugs in England years ago, I guess I used myself there. And similarly, I hurt my I sprained an ankle in, in Italy and I you know, went to the hospital. I wasn't charged a thing for it, even though I never pay into their tax base. That said, Trump tweeted out, quote, all Democrats just raise their hands for giving millions of illegal aliens unlimited health care. How about taking care of American citizens first? That's the end of that race, he said. Presumably talking about the presidential race, he thinks he won from just that, you know, while he'll repeat America first for the next 17 months. Of course, he's an idiot. But Heather, is he right, given how the, you know, the media media machine, particularly the right wing media machine here works with this stuff? I suspect they've already got ads ready to roll with the candidates being asked that question and all of those hands going up. Well, I don't think Democrats can can hide from any of this stuff. I mean, if they don't bring it up, the the right wing will. They'll say that Democrats are forgiving, you know, undocumented immigrants free health care, whether they really are or not. So I think that particular consideration probably isn't worth worrying too much about. I don't think you're handing them anything that 
you know, they wouldn't be making taking up anyway. They to. Yeah. Um, but just on the substance of that particular argument, there is there's a there's a great argument to be made here, which is that you know we're not going to ask our you know the ambulance drivers or the nurses at the intake uh, desk at an emergency room or doctors to ask for people for their citizenship papers that is not something we will ever do and it's not something we ever have done we don't do that if someone shows up in an emergency room they are going to get taken care of no matter what because that is how we are that's the kind of people we are having said that the best way for us to ensure save money and make sure that everybody is healthy in this country and i think i don't remember who it was maybe it was swalwell now that I think about it, who did say something in, during this debate about how you know our best bet is for everyone to be healthy? We want we want a healthy population. It was Buttigieg, Richard, oh, Buttigieg, uh, right, Richard's okay. mortal enemy. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but you know, I thought that was a good point. But it's you know, this is what you say. Look, they're be, they're going to be cared for because we do not do we don't have doctors asking for citizenship papers. The best thing, though, to do is for them to have access to health care at, at all stages. We don't want them coming to the emergency room when they're already sick. And you could even bring up stuff like, you know, the measles and various other things. You know, that you want people yep. in the system and you want them to have, have health care because it's a healthier population and we're doing it anyway. We're just doing it in the most expensive way possible. I mean, that's the argument that you have to make, and it's always going to be contentious yep. with a certain group of racists. I mean, there's nothing you can do about a that. Certain yeah, group and, of racists. And you yeah, make up ahead. a great point, Heather. That it really, it really doesn't matter what Democrats say about anything. No matter what they say, the Republicans are going to portray it as being, you know, the most evil thing in the world: socialism, uh, destroying civilization, whatever you want to call it. They're going to bring out the maximal outrage, no matter what it is. So we should bring out the maximal versions of policy so that we can say, look, this is what we stand yeah. for. Yeah, Welcome to politics. It ain't beanbag. I got to get to a quick break here and we're back with our closing few minutes of our special coverage of night two of debate one in Miami with Heather Digby Parton, Richard Escow, and of course, Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. I'm sorry we haven't talked more tonight about how we're going to beat Donald Trump. I have an idea about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not going to be beaten just by insider politics talk. This man has reached into the psyche of the American people and he has harnessed fear for political purposes. So Mr. President, if you're listening, I want you to hear me please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes and only love can cast that out. So I, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field and sir, love will win. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. That was uh, author and spiritual advisor Marianne Williamson. Her, her closing argument on uh, on Thursday night at the Democratic debate in Miami. Since I suspect she may not be in the race much longer, I wanted to at least be fair as I could and get a bit of her uh, comments in today. But as I was mentioning, I was going to play her over the break. Uh, both R.J. Eskow and uh, Digby, uh, Heather Digby Parton, my guest today, both said they had Marion Williamson stories. Who wants to go first? You get about 15 seconds each. 
Oh, I don't think I have a 15-second story. So I think I'll use my time to say that I think your music tag should have been What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding (laughs) by Elvis Costello. Because you know what? You know what? Debates are ridiculous anyway. There are circus. Uh, I, I was happy to have Marianne, you know, in, injecting a, a fourth-dimensional mm. quality to it. <laughs> and what is so funny about peace, love, and understanding? And uh, your uh, shot at Marianne oh, Williamson, Heather? I will just say she <laughs> ran for Congress in my district. Uh, yeah. Congressman Ted Lieu is my congressman, and she came in fourth. Um <laughs> So uh, that's in a congressional race. In, in oh. a, and it was a two-person race. So it that's was, how yeah, bad right. she... Uh, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, there were a lot of people in the race, but she <laughs> came in fourth. But I, I, I attended an event afterwards with a bunch of her followers and her supporters, many of whom are, are Hollywood stars. I won't name them, but um, there, were pe- there were many people there you would recognize. And yeah, mm-hmm. as Richard can say, and you guys too, we're all from L.A., so, you know, you go to political events, this mm-hmm. stuff happens. Anyway... She was she was very charming, very you know very you can tell you know she's got some charisma. But I'm telling you, she has got a fervent following. Mm. They were they oh, yeah. came in fourth in a congressional race. But I'm telling you, these people at this party were basically signing on for life. Mm-hmm. That you are our our greatest hope for the United States. This was in wow. 2012, and she was said that night, they all said, you have to run for president. So, you know, hey, Brad, you and I watched Trump come down that escalator, yeah. and we both said, hey, you know, maybe. So, you know, yeah. that's not, I'm being semi-facetious, <laughs> right? but let's just say it's not beyond the realm of possibility. No, and listen, by the way, I'm glad to have her in. I do like that fourth dimension. I like a lot of uh, voices. I want to hit Andrew Yang here real quick for that reason, but Des, you had a I am, quick thought? I am sure she's a very nice person, and she added a bit of fun to the evening, but I'm ready for her to be off of my TV, because we need that time to discuss actual issues. The fact that she lost against Ted Lieu, I am very glad, because <laughs> Representative Ted Lieu is an example of somebody who should be in government, who knows what they're doing, who understands the levers to pull, and I don't think she does. So I'm I'm ready for her to be gone. But he doesn't talk enough about love. What what happened to you, Desi Doyen? <laughs> you used to be. I don't know what's wrong. Anyway, all right. Uh, so I mentioned uh, Andrew Yang. We got just a second here. Uh, I was actually disappointed that Andrew Yang did not do better because he actually has done pretty well on the on the circuit when I've when I've seen him. Uh, but his central idea, I want to get this in for universal basic income. I think is an important one, and I welcome it into the conversation. He's got a lot of interesting ideas, actually. They're They're not crazy. They may be outside the box, but they're not crazy. So he's talking about giving no strings attached $1,000 to every American man, woman, and child, as I understand it. Over 18. Over eight. Okay, over 18 uh, under universal basic income. He was asked how he would uh, afford to pay for it. According to the moderator, it would cost something like $3 trillion a year. Here was his response. It's difficult to do if you have companies like Amazon, trillion dollar tech companies paying literally zero in taxes while they're closing 30% of our stores. And if we had a value added tax at even half the European level, it would generate over 800 billion in new revenue, which combined with the money in our hands, it would be the trickle up economy from our people, families and communities up. We would spend the money and it would circulate through our regional economies and neighborhoods, creating millions of jobs. We'd save money on things like incarceration, homelessness services, emergency room health care, and just the value gains from having a stronger, healthier, mentally healthier population would increase GDP by $700 billion. This is the move that we have to make, particularly as technology is now automating away millions
millions of American jobs. It's why Donald Trump is our president today, that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And we're about to do the same thing to millions of retail jobs, call center jobs, fast food jobs, truck driving jobs, and so, on and on through the economy. It's totally unfair, but I literally have no more than 30 seconds each for you guys to respond uh, to, to that idea. Let me start with uh, Richard. It's complete snake oil, out of the box, thinking they should be locked back in the box. He doesn't understand fundamental economics. He thinks we've lost millions of jobs because of automation. We haven't. It's the Silicon Valley's idea that they want to make 85% of the population redundant. So they've got plans, and this is not kidding or hyperbole on my part, to give them all a basic income, distract them with digital software, and make opioids and other drugs legal. This, this is the kind of thinking, the worst of the Silicon Valley, it's, it's fantasy land, and we should stay far away from it. I'm going to mark RJ down as against it. Uh, Heather? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Leaning again. Are you sure you don't want to Leaning. revisit that? <laughs> Leaning, yeah. Ha- I can't add anything to this because I don't actually know anything about it other than in Alaska, where I used to live, they mm-hmm. do have a, a you know a, a, a dividend that they give out every mm-hmm. year to all the residents. Uh, I will just say this: people like it a lot. So uh, yeah, but they have unemployment in Alaska. It hasn't saved oh, the world's problems. Oh, it has saved. It has done nothing other than make people. You know, happy for when they get the check. That's it. We had, uh, there was so much in that debate that we didn't get to that we're going to have to save for our secret subscribers only podcast coming up right after this. If we had one. Yeah, we don't have one. (laughs) But the people don't know that unless they go by bradblog.com slash donate, sign up for a subscription, and then find out maybe there are secret (laughs) podcasts. You don't know. I got to get out of here. My thanks to our guest today. Always, as always, fantastic. Heather Digby Parton. You can find her work at salon.com and digbysblog.blogspot.com. You can also uh, follow her on the Twitters at digby56. And Richard R.J. Escow, columnist all over the place. You can find him on the Twitters at R.J. Escow. And his uh, weekly, I should say, weekly radio and TV show, Zero Hour, which you can find at thisisthezerohour.com. Thanks to both of you guys very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Also, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And yes, sign up for a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. You never know what you'll get. Drop me an email if you want. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the bradblog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 